and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kenneth A. Adams, an attorney and expert on contract drafting. We'll discuss his book, A Manual of Style for Contract Drafting, which is published by the American Bar Association. So welcome to the show, Ken. Hello, pleasure to be with you. I'm really so glad to have you on. I, I found this book really fascinating and quite helpful already. Uh, and we'll talk about that more later in, in the interview. But I was wondering if you could start by you just introducing yourself for listeners a little bit, saying who you are and, and what it is that you do. By all means, I'm American. It so happens that I grew up overseas, uh, got all my secondary and college education in England, but somehow remembered I was American and came back to the U.S. for law school. Uh, started out in big law, but realized uh, relatively early on that my interests and aptitudes lay uh, less in cranking out deals, but in a more kind of leisurely inquiry. So at some point, it made sense for me to turn my attention to contract language. I was a, a deal lawyer, but I, was, I also have writerly urges. So I started looking at contract language, and that started taking more and more of my time. And I wrote a first book. Then I wrote the book you mentioned, Emanuel Style for Contract Drafting. And at uh, some point in 2006, I got a call from a big company saying, hey, read your book. Can you help us with our templates? And I said, by all means. And the next call I placed was the one saying, I quit. And and I had been working my way down the law firm food chain looking for an escape hatch. That was the escape hatch. And of course, it took another eight years before another client like that materialized, but it got me out the door. And the the however many years since has just been a continued process of gradually becoming more and more credible in terms of creating this field and expanding on it. It just, it's an interesting process of building an edifice brick by brick, and you sort of don't really notice the edifice, but after 20 whatever years, you can look back and say, hey, that's, that's a lot of nerdy stuff I've uh, compiled. So um, it has been quite an adventure. So when you first kind of started to conceptualize this book that we're talking about, A Manual of Style for, for Contract Drafting, what did you sort of envision when you initially began the project? And how, if at all, did it change as you wrote the initial version or as you've developed a subsequent version? I believe it's on the fifth edition. That's right. Well, the the simplistic way in which I have visualized it is that I would focus on how to say clearly and concisely whatever you want to say in a contract. That leaves a much bigger field of what you say in a contract. And that is just a function of whatever kind of deal you're doing. It's a whole world of substance that I couldn't begin to address. But the building blocks of contract language are used from deal to deal. So I can handle that, dealing with the words and phrases that 
that anyone's going to need to use to, to express their deal, whatever kind of deal it is. But what makes my subject particularly interesting is that it's not just a matter of, oh, let's write clearly, which I, I, I'm not going to denigrate that, certainly. But the particular excitement is in the way things can go off the rails if you're not paying attention to how you say whatever it is, because the legalistic mindset has a way of just making stuff up. That, and it becomes conventional wisdom, but it makes no sense. So I come along and I'm able to well, lock myself in a, in a darkened room for years on end, and I come out and say, aha, look at this standard bit of verbiage, and it doesn't make sense. And so it's, it's just been an intellectual adventure of a lifetime, uh, sorting that stuff out. It's a pretty specialized that wouldn't excite too many people probably, but it's been exciting for me. So one of the things I found really intriguing when I first came across your book, when somebody mentioned it on Twitter, is there's almost a kind of what seems like an incongruity in the title, right? Because normally you think of contract drafting as like documents that accomplish a goal, right? And it's not immediately obvious why style would would matter, given what contracts are for. You make a really strong case for why it does in the book, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think style is important and what you think style means in the context of contract Well, I did at one point try and revisit the title of the book because I wasn't seeking to invoke style so much as echo the Chicago Manual of Style in terms of ambition. So I just wanted, I, I was trying to suggest, here's something that you need to pay attention to. Here's a reference that you're going to need to consult in terms of how you say whatever you want to say. The notion of style can be a misleading one. I have encountered senior lawyers telling junior lawyers, you'll develop your own style over time. That's not at all what I have in mind because whatever you want to say, generally there's going to be one best way of saying it, a bunch of suboptimal ways, and it's for the best if we all use only the, the optimal way of saying something. So no, we're not each cultivating our own refined sort of style. No, it's just it's analogous to software code. They're just, just, just say it the best way. So to that extent, the title is a little misleading, but I hope not too misleading. Um, I don't object to the kind of gentle person, gentleman, well, whatever gentle and neutral word I'd use. Uh, I don't object to a kind of rarefied vibe that goes along with Emanuel style for contract drafting. It has a kind of 18th century tone to it, perhaps. I keep having to correct people and say, it's not the manual style, it's a manual style. Of course, there is no other manual of style for contract drafting, so it's not like I'm suggesting there. there's just a whole bunch out there, and here it happens to be mine. No, it's, it's, it's the only one, and I don't expect anyone else is going to have the appetite to uh, try something 
comparable? So the, the book lays out a, kind of a huge number of different suggestions and observations and very kind of particularized ways of addressing certain problems. I wonder if there were sort of general principles that were guiding you when you put together the book, sort of like shaping what you said, how you said it, why you said it, sort of where you, where you think this kind of style, as it were, of contract drafting ought to get people. Anyone writing about English usage of whatever sort is going to have to tackle a lot of different subjects. It's just, it's not one single story. It's going to be a bunch of different stories. So, so parceling out the terrain was the initial challenge. Beyond that, well, I've tried to make, make my prose more accessible than folk have a right to expect in terms of not aggravating the complexity of contract language by making my prose something that has to, they have to you have to fight through as well. Uh, if I've been successful, it's a function of having had five different ed- editions to work on it. And also I have had squads of volunteers, some people spending more time than I would ever have reason to expect, uh, trying to set me straight. There's one person who I uh, did a blog post about uh, who prefers to remain anonymous, but he just hammered at me uh, over there a couple of the third and the fifth edition where he just um, focused on having me not bury the lead. One thing, just stop telling some pretty some pretty rarefied sort of stories and explanations. And then at the end, ta-da, this is what you do because no one is, no one is going to last that long. So he just encouraged me to just say up front what's going on, what my recommendation is, and here's how you do it. And just less pussyfooting. So um, I, I think that's, that's what comes to mind unless we have uh, some other more specific. Uh, no, absolutely. So maybe so that listeners get a kind of a better sense of what to expect from your book, you could provide a few kind of concrete examples of suggestions that you make that would sort of be ways of improving sort of standard approaches or ways that people kind of historically have developed contract drafting practice that you think are suboptimal and ought to be improved. Let's see. Well, a lot of my recommendations are just a matter of cutting down unnecessary words and other distractions and just uh, conserving the reader's brain cells and allowing them to get through stuff more quickly. So it's not glamorous, but what the heck? Let's Let's just advance the cause by not wasting people's time. And so there's a whole bunch of that. And I permit myself to get annoyingly detailed just because, you know, even in contexts where 
there isn't necessarily a right way or a wrong way. It would just be best to have everyone coalesce around a particular uh, particular way of doing things. Sometimes, well, some of my recommendations can get people bent out of shape in ways you don't expect. The recommendation that causes brains to implode is my recommendation that you not make this agreement a defined term. It is utterly standard to say this merger agreement, data whatever between A and B, blah, 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 parentheses, the, opening quotation marks, agreement, capital A, close quotation marks, close parentheses. And then elsewhere in the contract, you use this agreement, capital A. I say there is no benefit to that because this agreement is this agreement. It's not that agreement. And I don't have to say this merger agreement. Now, you know, this merger agreement by itself is a reference to a thing. We don't give initial capitals to things. It's just, it's a kind of document. It's not a title. This merger agreement, you might as well say this car or this dog or whatever. It's lowercase letters. So this agreement, rather than, this merger agreement, it's, it's, appropriate, it's appropriate to just say this agreement as a matter of economy. I don't have to keep reminding people that it's a merger agreement. I'm saying this agreement. And I can use small a. In fact, it's, it's appropriate to use small a. Nothing is gained by saying this, uh, making this agreement a defined term. But that just causes anxiety. It's a matter of how we've all been riding the copy and paste train for generations. And the assumption is if, if something is a particular way in the vast majority of contracts, it must make sense. It must be the appropriate thing to do. And there are all sorts of things like that that, that, are, that are utterly standard, but that make no sense. So surprisingly, recommendations that ultimately aren't substantive, just involve a lot of hand-holding and also involve a fair amount of scholarship. Like the, there's something called the traditional recital of consideration that, be, that precedes the body of the contract. Now, therefore, in consideration of blah, 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 good and valuable consideration, receipt and sufficiency, there's a, there is no point in that. But explaining it requires that I have to delve into a lot of uh, arcane stuff. But they, ultimately, the, the message is, this is deeply stupid. Don't do it. So, the, so I inflict on myself the, the task of, of having to figure it out. But the, the, the recommendation is ultimately very straightforward and not not substantive. It's kind of anti-substantive. It's like, this is not an important part of the contract. So don't waste all sorts of stupid words that no one is going to read anyway. So that that's that's the kind of clearing the decks side. Um, things can things get things can get a little more exciting tackling some entrenched notions. But even there, come to think of it, it's, it's, it's a matter of disabusing people of silliness and opting for something that's straightforward, like uh, the conventional wisdom regarding 
efforts provisions is that you have best efforts and that's the, the highest level and reasonable efforts is a lesser level and commercially reasonable, maybe somewhere in the middle and all reasonable. Anyway, it, it is this, this notion of a hierarchy. And I have devoted way more attention to the subject than I might have expected uh, culminating in an enthralling 2019 law review article that deployed such trendy things as corpus linguistics and Google engrams and so on, all to say it's profoundly silly. And I've had people, the, the people who are going to, who ultimately published that ended up arranging a beforehand kind of intervention is are you do you really mean this this is just this is just the way of doing things i said stop it and publish it already don't you know you are you're uh out on a limb you're 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 talking nonsense and lo and behold the delaware court of chancery um a couple of years ago cited cited the leading authority on efforts provisions, Adams, um, in favor of the notion that yeah, commercially reasonable, we don't need the commercially part. Uh, so, and and my said my article was the the most authoritative treatment of the subject. So, yay me! Um, I kind of wrote it with Delaware courts in mind. Um, so, it, it paradoxically, I'm at I'm I'm at one and the same time a a, um, I don't know, a, a bomb thrower, uh, not a great metaphor these days, but a uh, some sort of uh, heretic, while at the same time, I'm sufficiently establishment for the courts to cite me. So it's not a, it's not a bad position to be in. It's kind of interesting position to be in. Hmm. So as I recall that you made another recommendation, one among many that also was controversial with at least some people. There's there's kind of a convention in contract drafting of saying represents and warrants, and you recommend using states in instead. Why was that controversial, and, and why do you think people were wrong about it? Yeah, represents and warrants um, loomed large. Uh, I, I I fought battles online over represents and warrants, culminating in yet another law review article in 2015. But people still get a little bent out of shape over my recommendation, which is that represents and warrants, that uh, that say uh, those two words don't make any sense. Um, There are ostensible reasons, rationales that are offered as conventional wisdom, but like most such conventional wisdom, it's just a kind of fig leaf offered by riders of the copy and paste train just to 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 make themselves feel better, to offer a superficial rationale that, that they can uh, use to justify to themselves their choice of words, and then they just go about their business of cranking the handle of the copy and paste machine. But I made a point of trying to, to follow up on those ostensible rationales, and I found nothing. They're preposterous. So 
I say, use states instead. We're just, we're saying facts. That's all we're doing. And we're not making representations and warranties. We're, we're making statements of fact. Um, but like all my recommendations, you have to take context, context into account. If you're reviewing the other side's M&A draft, it is not the time to lay states on them. If you're doing an M&A draft, if you're using states, you're going to have to be prepared to have some conversations that end up being more long-winded than you would have wanted. Um, so, eh, you know, be careful. Uh, but for regular commercial contracts where you're selling widgets and hundreds of deals and you purge your template of all nonsense, well, states, by all means. And I've had people indicate to me that they have they have used states as a adventure and no one noticed. And that's how that's how the, the, the most effective revolutions happen when no one notices. So I'm I'm upbeat for the prospects of states. So you, you make one observation that I think might strike some people as counterintuitive. And I wonder if you could expand on a little bit. Um, I think a lot of people think that lawyers should strive to use, quote unquote, plain English when they're producing legal documents. And you suggested that's the wrong kind of framing for thinking about contract drafting. Why is that? And, and what do you think is a better way of thinking about what contract drafted co- contract language ought to look like? My main reservation about plain English and plain language is that they're terms that be, can, can be misconstrued, uh, perhaps obtusely, by people who are used to more traditional language. They say, well, we can't dumb our contracts down. We're not drafting for the person in the street. That's, that's not the idea. A contract is going to be as complicated as the transaction it needs to express. And often that's plenty complicated. So you, you need to use terminology to, to reflect that complexity. But there's no reason to layer on top of that an additional level of complexity that's just a result of how you go about expressing the deal. So I, I refer to standard English just to try and avoid signaling that there's any dumbing down involved. We're just going to express the deal as clearly as we can, as accessibly as we can, uh, acknowledging that, we're, that we might well have to employ terms of art that are inescapable unless you want to make everything a lot longer and ultimately harder to work with. So, Ken, in, in preparation for this interview, I sent you a very brief contract that I that I drafted, uh, and you made some really helpful comments on that. I wonder, I wonder if you could single out a few of those and and kind of make an example of me. What did I what did I do wrong? What, what could I have done better? Just a, a few kind of pointers to, as a way of illustrating. Let's see. Well, I took the liberty of inflicting on you my kind of uh, well low grade economy recommendations 
um, not low grade, just uh, just not not exciting. For example, you've referred to motion pictures listed in Appendix A of this agreement. Appendix had a capital A. I say, well, Chicago Manual Style recommends lowercase for references to parts of a book, parts of a document. So I'm going to make that uh, a small a for appendix. And if you have just one appendix, why do we need appendix A? There's no appendix B. And of this agreement, we don't need that because if you say it listed in the appendix, then it's, it's going to be the appendix to this contract as opposed to the appendix to war and peace or whatever it might be. So I permit myself that sort of suggestion. Um, you have recitals where you're telling a backstory. One of your recitals is copyright owner and distributor are forming a license agreement for a distributor to reproduce, distribute, blah, blah, blah. Evidently, you're referring to this contract, but when you're saying are forming a license agreement, that could be understood as meaning, hey, we're, separately, we're doing something else with this license agreement. No, you're, 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 you're talking about this agreement, and when, and there's no need to foreshadow in the recitals what you're going to do in the body of the contract, except if a general statement helps provide some sort of background. So, um, so just that's something for you to to to, to muse on at your leisure. Um, in terms of the rest, I think the, 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 a substantive component relates to a topic addressed in, in a, the, the categories of contract language chapter in the book, which discusses how every sentence falls into one of a number of categories of contract language, performance, obligation, discretion, prohibition, and so on. It is an antidote to the chaotic and random verb structures you find in traditional contract language. And it just causes you to think about, okay, what am I trying to accomplish? So, uh, for example, um, one sentence is, distributor shall account to copyright owner for all revenue generated by the distribution of the works and set aside 50%. I, I don't know what shall account to the copyright owner means. Does that mean the copyright owner has inspection rights? I don't know. That's something we could have a separate conversation about in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. Then in terms of distributors setting aside 50% of the gross revenue, that sounds like, okay, that's an obligation. What does set aside mean? Is that referring to a bank account or something? I, My instinct is that we want to have that be language of policy which happens, which relates to that, which happens automatically. And you, you, you want to say half of this is, half of this belongs to uh, the copyright owner in some manner. It's just, it's going to happen automatically rather than being subject to someone doing something. Instead, it's just, hey, ha here's how the pie is divided. And it's just, it, it just happens automatically. Then you go on to talk about copyright owner directs distributor to dispose of. Uh, that is, that's actually interesting because ultimately that, uh, that that's a subcategory of categories of contract language. Um, it 
deal, it, it relates to a topic I call throat clearing, where you have a redundant initial verb structure before what actually matters. Copyright owner directs distributor to, to dispose of. I just say distributor shall dispose of. We don't have to have the copyright owner telling the distributor. Instead, the distributor is going to have an obligation. Um, and just while we're at it, I'm not sure what category I'd put this, but you had um, disposing of any profits by donating. Donating has legal implications that I don't think are relevant here. It has you know, some sort of charitable vibe. Instead, just say, just say uh, pay whatever it is to whomever. It's just transferring by by wire transfer or whatever mechanism you're paying. We don't need to have the some sort of substantive vibe. Uh, anything like that should be already addressed elsewhere. So huh, uh, does that uh, give enough of a flavor? Oh, I think that's great. Thank you so much. And, and the comments were actually incredibly helpful. So uh, I, really, I really appreciate that, both by way of the conversation today, but also uh, as I continue to work to improve the contract language. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very pleased by uh, all of the suggestions. All right. Well, at your service. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the goals of your book. Do you, do you consider it a scholarly project and why or why not? My goals are pragmatic to less to make the world of contracts less chaotic than it is because the current state of affairs everyone is wasting catastrophic amounts of time and money and getting into fights and that just disagrees with me it's like if i can do anything to help then i will do that so um in terms of whether it's scholarship, I think that is a kind of loaded question that deals with people's aspirations as much as anything else. What I do involves semantics, just clear writing as one component, but it also involves case law and it involves deal mechanics. I think in terms of legal scholarship, a lot of law school people would regard what I do as being tainted by the legal writing component. Ah, it's been tarred by legal writing. And so they're inclined to dismiss it. I think that is unhelpful. Um, I, I get a modest amount of revenge by just saying, okay, well, you, you uh, deal academic person, observe how this word and this phrase just has implications that are way beyond what you think they have, and it doesn't make sense. And the result can be uh, kind of sputtering um, on, their, on the part of more traditionalist faculty. And beyond that, I don't think I have to, I don't know, feel like a second-class citizen to anyone in terms of the, the brain cells I've experienced on this project and the ambition of the work as a whole. I, it, it has been a blast for me and, and as a, a, an intellectual adventure. So um, I, I, don't, I don't need to, for it to be blessed by anyone other than people who are 
working on you know working on contracts you know doing the hard laboring work in that regard um, what the goal is um, i i've become reconciled to the fact that that people who work with contracts are used to copy and pasting and what i've done is given them a a series of blueprints for building better contracts. And I say, there you go, go and go forth and build. And few people have the time, expertise, authority, resources to do that. So at the moment, the book is a bit of a vanity project for those who can handle a an almost 700 page book and the work that it that it uh, that is involved in actually making use of the book. Um, I mean, the, the book has sold tens of thousands of copies and so on, and so there are plenty of people out there using it, but they're always going to be a small fraction. So when I embarked on this project, I had in mind that besides whatever excitement the the research itself and the writing itself offered it was also going to be a a means to an end because turning contract drafting into a commodity requires a legitimate set of guidelines so i thought okay i will build the guideline i I will compile the guidelines and then i'll find some way to scale up quality contract language that uses those guidelines and then has uh, substance offered by the kinds of people you'd want to get advice from on that. So uh, that second project has taken a lot longer than uh, I had thought, and that I've been knocking on doors for 15 years now, but I appear to be the only person with the appetite to do that sort of thing, largely because it just, I, I know from my consulting experience, people just don't have the stomach to rummage in the entrails of dysfunctional contract language and come up with alternatives. So essentially, it's me or it's nobody. And uh, lo and behold, I am now engaged in discussions in terms of, you know, with, with, people with resources to back it um, um, discuss an initiative to create automated annotated contract templates that allow people to achieve a quality way of expressing their deal without having to traffic in the, the, the dysfunction of traditional contract language and without spending 18 months trying to build their own template uh, that will probably end up not being great anyway. So so that is the logical extension of the book. And in the coming months, we'll, we ought to see whether that plays out as I would wish it to. Well, so Ken, in, in closing, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the reception of the book over over the years since you started the project from you know, lawyers, from judges, clients like how how have people reacted to your suggestions your proposal and your sort of big picture project it has been uh, very rewarding um i 
there are a lot of people out there who rely on the book and they let me know or they just express to others. I encountered a a comment on LinkedIn by someone I don't know and they weren't directing it at me. They said that my book had changed their life. And that's uh, it's kind of um, seems like the stuff of self-help books. But what the heck? You know, I wish I had had the book. It, it just it's working with contracts can be gruesome and demoralizing if you're hacking through trash and um so people have uh found my book to be of great assistance in that regard and uh that it is uh, fulfilling to have that be the case and i hear from people quite regularly so i um are they a a just a portion of the many people who work with contracts sure but it's but it's a start and it's gratifying. Um, and I have complained online in a, in a one blog post in particular that people don't take me on in the marketplace of ideas. I'm out there, uh, people will tell you I'm quite assertive. Some people will tell you I'm an utter jerk because I just, I care about this stuff. And if people are disseminating what I regard as misinformation, I think it's my responsibility <laughs> to set them straight. It's not not a particularly winning characteristic, but I think if you're dealing with such an entrenched profession, I think you have to be willing to be uh, to be assertive. So I complain; people don't take me on, but I I understand that because. Taking me on is going to require that you do do serious work, um, and few people have the the uh, appetite for uh, sequestering themselves in a cave for years figuring this stuff out. But I think there there might be an even simpler explanation. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> how to sound like a jerk, I know, but it's just, the hard work is is just analyzing what the implications of these words and phrases. And after the analysis is done, I'm, I'm left with a choice of, hey, are we going to continue the, the inane traditional stuff? Are we going to just use something clear instead? So there really isn't much argument to it. Once you do the hard work, once you're willing to actually look at this stuff, so there's not really much basis for people to, to, to argue with me. So basically, I have a, you know, plenty of people who, who just let me know my stuff is useful. I have courts. Delaware Chancery Court has cited me a fair amount, so that's all great. And naysayers tend to not stray onto the marketplace of ideas and they might be a majority but they're silent and they're mostly they're mostly that way because they don't have a choice they're just cranking the handle of the copy and paste machine and they have to get contracts done they don't have the luxury of doing anything else it's it's 
Yeah, I'm trying to help them as well, ultimately, in my notions of, hey, let's try and scale up quality contract language. Amazing. Well, Ken, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and talking about your book. Uh, I learned a lot reading it, and I learned a lot uh, talking to you about it, and I hope listeners will go out and get their own copy and uh, do that little bit to help improve contract drafting in the future. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. check to come and it still hasn't come yet it's about a year overdue I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky I waited and the mailman never dropped it in my letterbox Check and sky Ooh, baby But you can Beat the tax man And me All at once 